0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Science Dispatch Podcast. This is episode 41. I am your host, Cameron English, joined again by Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Chuck, what's going on in your life? How are things? Oh, it's a beautiful day. Well, actually, it's
1: overcast. But given my, my health issues over the
0: last year, every day is a great day. Not a problem. Nothing like a near-death experience to put things in perspective, yeah? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're uh, we're starting off on a happy beat, which we don't always get to do on this show. And uh, let's ju- jump into our story. So today we're talking about uh, a scientific explanation of vaccines in the time of COVID, which uh, Chuck wrote. And then we have another story by our uh, resident toxicologist, Susan Goldhaber, called A Misguided Golden State Bill which is gonna be a lot of fun to talk about. But Chuck, what is the uh, the focus of your first story here?
1: Well, depending on your political persuasion, um, Dr. Fauci is now on his apology tour or uh, we are getting better information on what went on during the COVID pandemic. I'll leave it to the political pundits to decide which it really is. But here's his statement. Past unsuccessful attempts to elicit solid protection against mucosal respiratory viruses, now it would be COVID-19, and to control the deadly outbreaks and pandemics they cause have been a scientific and public health failure that must be urgently addressed. So Dr. Fauci does recognize that our pandemic response was not too good. And the article goes into some detail talking about what we've learned about vaccines. And I thought it was particularly um, interesting because I, I think there was a lot of misconceptions about what vaccines did and did not do um, before COVID. And that's changed our thinking somewhat. I would I would say that I, I certainly wasn't the, the worst or the best student in medical school, but a lot of this stuff, Uh, I must have missed that class to talk about. But basically, I think that a lot of us, when we think about um, vaccines, especially the respiratory vaccines, we think about measles, mumps, and rubella, the MMR. And those are vaccinations which are one and done. You get the vaccination, and not only uh, you are protected from having those diseases, you don't get them a little bit. You just don't get them at all. And the protection is long lasting. We never talk about getting a booster shot um, for these. But as it turns out, and this is what um, they go on to talk about in the article, um, measles, mumps, and rubella are very different viruses um, from COVID-19. Um, while they both replicate in um, our, our nose and, and upper respiratory tracts, Measles, mumps, and rubella enter the bloodstream, and once they enter the bloodstream, they are exposed to a lot more of our immune system than uh, a virus that's contained within the upper respiratory tract. Again, COVID Uh, viruses that are maintained just in the in our nose and 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 our throat per se um, experience. an antibody IgA, which is secreted by the mucosa, but they're not exposed to any of the other elements of our immune system. And so as a response, as they write, the full force of adaptive immunity, which is the antibodies and T-cells and the, the whole system, including the, the B-memory the B cells, uh, is not brought to bear. And as a result, uh, COVID vaccinations are going to be much closer to the influenza vaccinations than they are to measles, mumps, and rubella. And I think that that was never made clear early on, that very much uh, the vaccination program over-promised, under-delivered, and then people became uh, concerned because of that. And so I, I think that the article is valuable in pointing out these different immune responses and physiologic responses so that we have a better sense uh, of what the COVID vaccines um, could do. And and from that point of view, they've really fulfilled um, their need. They lessen the severity of the disease. And as a result, um, there are less people being hospitalized and there are fewer uh, deaths attributable to COVID among the vaccinated. And And I think that that's pretty clear consensus uh, in, in science at this point. What it doesn't do is confer an immunity and complete protection and it doesn't have an immunity that lasts. So it's very different than um, the kind of vaccines that we all grew up with. Again, when you think of some of the other ones, polio, you don't think about getting booster shots for polio. Uh, the only place where you get a vaccine that you you would think about getting a booster is tetanus. Um, So it's a very different kind of thing. And I I think that it's important um, in this article to have spoken about the science. I think it would have been really nice to have known some of this stuff beforehand or certainly to have discussed it as we moved along through the pandemic rather than presenting this monolithic public health
0: message that you have to get vaccinated because that will be protective. So just to be clear here, the information that he's discussing, this would have been known to infectious disease experts before the publication of this article. Is that correct?
1: I I think that he's summing up what we've learned in the last three years. Was all of this known before we created the vaccine? No. Is it all information that we have now? Yes. Um. Would some of it have been useful to have known along the way? Absolutely. But that's not <laughs> how the policymakers rolled out the information. It doesn't mean that the information wasn't becoming apparent. Again, you, when we talk about COVID, you got to think about it at the time and place um, that it occurred. When COVID came, it was a very lethal disease for the uh, people that were most at risk we had no treatment we had no understanding of it and we lost a lot of lives over that and um it's taken us a while to get past those pandemic fears and for our um understanding and treatment of the disease uh to co-evolve with the the lessening um Morbidity and mortality associated with it. It's, it's a, the 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 current variants are far more infectious, but they're far less um, lethal than
0: the original ones. And and you know that's part and parcel of what's gone on. So let me ask you: We normally end here, but let's let's jump into this a little bit sooner. What do you think people in positions of power, policymakers, politicians, public health officials, what what should they take away from this? As they start shaping uh, messaging for the next vaccine, and maybe it's not in the context of a pandemic, but the next time there's a big push to get people vaccinated, um, what do they need to learn from this? And and the reason I ask is because there has been, and we're not going to get political, but there has been a lot of commentary from people on both sides of the aisle. Oh, yes. That's been absolute. So I remember, just for example, MSNBC for the longest time told people you're an idiot. If you don't get this because it stops transmission, don't be an idiot. And it was, there was no nuance. There was no, you know, but, but you know what I'm saying? Um, so, so let's, let's start there. What, what needs to change in terms of the official messaging based on this article that Dr. I think the
1: official messaging has to take into account that the American public is more intelligent, um, than we are often given credit for. That's rule number one. We don't need to be talked down to as children. You can provide us with information that's nuanced, and many of us will be able to process and understand um, the nuances of what's being said. You don't have to deliver a strictly um, black and white yes or no, do this, don't do that, Uh, message. Now, interesting, and this is just will be a shameless plug for something um, that I'm I'm writing this week. Um, There was a study looking globally at um, people's response to um, COVID public health measures. And the expectation was that people that are conservative would more quickly adhere to the public health messaging um, than people that were not as conservative or or traditionalist, was the the word that the anthropologists were using. And in 16 of 27 countries, um, that was the case. The U.S. was a big outlier in that. And so they went and looked at the reasons why um, our conservatives uh, didn't cling to the public health message. And there were a number of reasons in there having to do with, um, their beliefs and the relationships with their peers, but misinformation and ignorance were not the variables that were of any importance here. People made the decisions, not because they were stupid, not because they were misinformed, but because their balance of the risk and the benefits were such that they chose either to wear masks all the time and to social distance or not. And, and, and I think that that's an important um, message for us all um, to have uh, looking back at this. Um, we took different positions about this, but we didn't take those positions out of some individual um, political decision. When you aggregate everybody together, it very well may be that we we fell into various political camps. But the individual decisions were specific trade-offs that these that each individual made about what their risks and what their benefits were. And I, and I think that that's an important um, idea to get. One of the things I said at, at the end, just because I wanted to address the politics just for a moment, was that the. The 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 right side has seen this article as part of the apology tour, and see he flip flopped, and now the truth is finally coming out. Um, but on the other side of the aisle, we should have a little more uh, hubris for the lack of information that we that we have. There are so many things that we don't know that we don't know. Um, that to to jump to the position of these people decided because they were stupid or ignorant or misinformed um, is going too far from my point of view.
0: Very important points you just made there. Let me read the end of your article because I think it it helpfully sums up everything that came before it. So you're talking about the article that that Fauci wrote. You say the article has a chameleon-like quality for those on the political right, this may be as social media has suggested suggested Fauci coming clean, admitting that the COVID-19 vaccines do not work. For those on the political left, it may be a moment of hubris, recognizing how little we actually know we are not masters of our bodies, let alone the universe. I really like that, Chuck, and it brings me back to that old cliche. I'm sure everyone gets this at some point. Maybe it was going to medical school for you. For me, it was like getting interested in philosophy and reading these books by old dead guys. And I just realized, like, I don't, there's so much I don't know. Like, I don't even know how to formulate my confusion about Thomas Aquinas, you know, like when I started reading all that stuff. (laughs) So, 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 so in other words, talk a little bit about the importance of, and we've covered it here too, the importance of humility, the importance of recognizing that you don't always know that much. And it's actually a good thing to Acknowledge that in a in a public setting,
1: right? No, I. I uh, unfortunately, the the family motto has been for many years, often wrong, never in doubt, <laughs> and that that's been problematic. And I spent a lot of time trying to to get past that and recognizing um, the things that I don't know. Certainly, the things that um, I'm uncertain about. I I, I think that. That was one of the advantages of a surgical career because there's a any number of things that are involved with any specific operation on any one individual where there's some unknowns and sometimes those unknowns are life and death um, outcomes and so I I learned to be much more comfortable with um, uncertainty and having some kind of guiding. Uh, approach to it, but it, it's oftentimes very difficult to generalize all those good things that I learned in surgery to, to my day-to-day. And, and, I, and I think that it's part of our human behavior to be very uncomfortable with uncertainty. And so um, part of our human nature is in the face of uncertainty to look around us and develop a story that explains things and, and relieves that fear. And, and, and I, I think we certainly saw with COVID two very different stories developing on a, on a population basis, but they were made out of millions and millions of little stories
0: that were similar but never the same. That's very helpful. <laughs> good, good insight. It really is. I mean, it, it's it's the kind of thing people need to hear. The, I want to return to one point you made earlier, because it's it's also very important. And it's the, the fact that the public isn't stupid. And yeah. even if they get things incorrect, sometimes they have a baseline understanding that allows them to assess their own risk. And if they do make an error, they can correct it. And I remember, I don't, it might've been January, 2021. I'm not sure on the date, but there was a study published where this team of researchers went and surveyed in various countries how people reacted to the public health advice that they received or the infection control measures that were promulgated in their country. And what they found was people, as you said, adjusted their behavior based on their own risk. So the older folks who had, uh, who had, um, other risks that that put them in jeopardy for suffering severe COVID, they were more conservative in the measures they took, staying home and, you know, being more judicious about going to stores and so forth. And other people that were younger and, and healthier didn't take as many precautions. And I, I don't remember what their conclusion was, but mine is I think that's OK. It's OK for people to make those kind of assessments. Um, yes. But, but anyways the, the key point is you can give people this information and even if they they get it wrong they're not stupid like they're smart enough to go oh I'm, I must have misconstrued this let me go back you just have to treat them like they're adults capable of making decisions
1: yes absolutely you know again I, I think you're right you know when you look at when they look at the mobile phone data on the people in Florida um, the population in Florida shut locked themselves down two weeks before the governor even said a word. The people that were concerned took action long before um, the public health mandates were there. And the people that were not concerned didn't <laughs> didn't take them at all or didn't take them until later on when they were, there was some reason, oftentimes something unfortunate, somebody in the family got ill or so on, uh, that made them, Think about it twice. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we, we lose a valuable resource when we underestimate the ability of the American public to understand um, what science has to say if we present it in a straightforward way. And a lot of these things um, we might have been able to say um, months ago. But for whatever reasons, our policymakers decided it would be better to um, tell us um, a
0: generalization and not get into the nuance. I, I hope they learn from this, Chuck. I'm I'm skeptical that the people in charge will learn. I saw recently. I I don't know which. It was a major like health publication for the for the public, and they were talking to these researchers who were saying. Uh, here's what we need to do to get people on board with the next vaccine, and their conclusion after all this research that <laughs> that's been done was, well, we need to take account of people's interests. So if they like Star Wars, we need to theme the vaccine messaging based on Star Wars, and we need to use words like "choose today." <laughs> if we say "if we say choose today," that uh, that makes people think they have a choice in the matter. And I just slammed my head on my desk. It's like it's like look. Star Wars is great. I love Star Wars. I guess, um, but that's not why anybody was skeptical of the vaccines. I like. I, I hope that that messaging dies because that's just so foolish. If people really think that's why there were people that wouldn't get vaccinated is because you didn't appeal to their interest in in, in science fiction. I mean, <laughs> I can't. I, I can't help you.
1: I, I I hear you. I hear the broad outlines of that, but I would tell you um, that. When you're doing sales, and from my point of view, all of surgery is sales. Nobody comes in saying, please operate on me. And those that do, you don't operate on because it's only going to be bad. <laughs> um, you, you have to sell the reasons. You have to make a pitch for the um, the benefits and the risks of it. So it's it, there's some sales in there. And I don't think we did a very good job of doing... Um, what would be called retail sales. They did wholesale sales, um, you know, with the broad strokes. But, you know, talking to an individual about their concerns, and that never took place. And that that's something um, that's missing. If you're looking for the political analogy to that, which, of course, nobody will be, um, the Iowa caucus is retail politics. It's door to door. You've got to convince the caucuses individually, those people that are voting. It's not a national election where uh, one ad will convince or not convince any group of people. And so I think that that's part part and parcel of good public health messaging is to send the message out in a number of ways, all straightforward all going the same place, but you, you can, you can alter the, the framing. You can alter the language and uh, I think ultimately get more people on board by
0: doing that. I don't, know, I don't particularly have a problem with that. I don't either. I, I, and to use another phrase from sales, you need to identify people's pain points. You need to identify yes. what their concerns are. What's stopping them from making this purchase, if you will in terms of getting the vaccine, you know? And I think that's where the 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 misalignment is, is you're correct that you have to convince people, but, you know, f- focusing on particular word choice or your right. lack of Star Wars references, that's just not the, <laughs> that's right. not the key. Nor, nor is choosing the words ignorant and stupid. Right. <laughs> okay, so we've concluded. Don't call people stupid, don't reference Star Wars, and uh you're going to do a better job than... Uh, CDC did last year, or in the last three years. <laughs> okay. um, all right, well, let's move on, Chuck. Let's talk about, uh, hey, we're talking about, uh, you're from California, too. We're talking about our home yes. country here, a misguided golden state bill by Susan Goldpaper. What's she talking about here?
1: Um, Susan was talking about a bill before the California legislature to ban uh, five chemicals um, and felt that there was um, a lack of a scientific basis for it so let me just touch on a few bases here so the the chemicals were as follows there was a brominated vegetable oil and actually what it is is the um the citrus flavor in soft drinks is in an oil base and by brominating putting uh, brominating by putting bromide into the the mix it allows this oil to mix properly with the water so it doesn't separate doesn't change the taste, doesn't have any other effect there. They then talked about another chemical called potassium bromate. Bromide family was having a tough time here, which is um, an agent that um, increases the volume and consistency of bread. Uh, Polyparabens are used in foods and cosmetics. as Preservatives, they have some degree of an antimicrobial uh, effect and they actually um, are produced by plants in nature, but there's been a lot of discussion about um, their relative safely. Red dye number three is used in cakes and candies throughout the planet. Anytime you're looking for a red color, um, red dye number three is there. And finally, titanium dioxide, um, which makes products whiter or brighter, and are found in a number of foods um, and and other goods. When you look at the list, um, one of the things that jumped out at me, separate from the science, which I promise I'll get to in a second, is that of the five, four of them are chemicals that um, have to do with the appearance and the saleability of products. Um, you don't want to see um, a little bit of an oily layer in your soft drinks. Everybody wants the bread that they buy to look the same. Everybody wants um, a particular color uh, to be found in things, and everybody likes things that are brighter and whiter. So we can eliminate all of those tomorrow if people didn't want to buy the products That had those chemicals in it. So that's problematic in separating out what I would consider the necessary things from the um, the cosmetic, the chemicals that have a cosmetic or preservative purpose. And that preservative purpose is also important because um, much of our food supply comes from a distance, and so you have to have foodstuffs that travel well and that can be uh it's equally true for a processed food um as for a natural food we don't grow bananas in the united states (laughs) they're grown in south america and they come to us in big shipping containers that are climate controlled to control um their full maturation um so there's any number of chemicals that we use um, to allow us to uh, take advantage of the global food market. If we're willing to give up bananas, then we don't have to worry about ethylene oxide uh, in there any longer. In any case, uh, Susan's point was is that um, the risk assessments that were made in the United States versus Europe uh, are somewhat different. And basically, in the U.S., the chemicals are assessed to see which ones can cause harm, and they do a variety of tests and have determined that of of the ones that they've actually talked about um, getting rid of, um, only red dye number three has been shown to cause any problem in terms of cancer, and it was in um, rats, there's never any proof of that uh, being the case in humans, but our policy when it comes to chemicals that cause cancer in other creatures is that if it causes cancer in other creatures, then we're not going to uh, be putting it into our products. That's the precautionary principle of out of an abundance of caution, we will not do it. And in Europe, um, the precautionary principle is the standard by which they make any judgments at any time that they find uh, that a chemical causes harm irrespective of the dose it is a chemical that they will not allow, and uh, it, what we see now is that California, on its own, is moving um, more and more towards the precautionary principle that um, the lack of uh, absence of harm is not evidence that it doesn't exist at some other point in time over some accumulation. So why why take the risk? And, and the problem, of course, when you talk about California making these kind of decisions is that California is a huge market, and California will drive um, companies to do this across their their product line because they're they're loath to make a product that's only saleable in California, and they make a separate product for the rest of the
0: uh, states. So I want to get to a couple of things here, Chuck. The first is that. Just some background on the precautionary principle. When it emerged in Europe, it made sense because coming out of World War II, the entire continent was obliterated, quite literally, right? By by bombs and war, half the male population was killed in war. So coming out of that context, I could see why people would say, look, we need to pump the brakes on this science stuff because it's very capable of killing lots of people for for very bad reasons. So. It makes sense. But but we've come so far from that sort of a situation to now we're freaking out about the food coloring used in Skittles. (laughs) It's just like we've just gone way overboard. And here's the here's the quote. This is um, in Susan's article. This is California Assemblyman Jesse Gabriel. He says, we don't love our kids any less here in the state of California than they do in Europe. And we need to take the same steps to protect our kids so it's it's so funny to me and this is this is a typical example of what's known as the ban in Europe fallacy because Europe is hyper precautionary and if they ban something, well that must be good enough reason because Europeans are super smart, so we don't love our kids any less right so it's just i- I, guess, I don't even know what my question here is I guess maybe talk a little bit about the continuum of risk and how badly we analyze okay. that these days well,
1: let me let me first say that scoundrels always hide behind the children hmm the children in capital, we do everything for the children. But in reality, if you look at our policies, we don't like children a whole lot. Um, you know, <laughs> the, example, the example I always use is talking about, you know, there is a, um, there's a hierarchy within medicine, you know, and, you know, cardiac surgeons and neurosurgeons tend to be at the top. You don't see a lot of programs on television about um, internal medicine people, you don't see a lot of programs about um, pediatricians on TV. You know, so the, the the neurosurgeons, cardiac surgeons, they they absorb a lot of that uh, elegance, and, and the pay scale reflects that. Um, while all doctors do fine, pediatricians are at the bottom of the pile. So, if we really thought that it was important to worry about the children, you would think that we would pay the doctors who are taking care of children a little bit better but we don't and, and, I, and I, so I always it always raises concern when when a public figure talks to me about protecting the children in any case uh, I think that um, and this might be a, a whole separate time to have a, a different bit of a podcast is the precautionary principle came from uh, the experience of World War II, specifically um, the atomic bomb. And the radiation studies that follow that, looking at cancer, um, for a number of reasons, they went with the um, no-threshold model, meaning there was no degree of radiation that was considered safe. And therefore, uh, that became the standard um for looking at radiation hazards, but that was then more generally applied to biologic systems. And biologic systems uh, respond differently um, than radiologic systems. Biologic systems have um, kind of a Goldilocks point when there's uh, not too little, not too much, just the right amount. And that's really the basis for why Um, You have these very different views of what's uh, a safe amount of any particular chemical. Precautionary principle believes that there is no safe level for these chemicals once you show that any kind of harm at all, and they they need to be banished. Uh, And and that's the end of the conversation. Um, People that have spent more time working with biologic systems uh, recognize that there are acceptable levels there is a threshold at which once you've exceeded that threshold um, the chemical may be deleterious um, but the, below that level it's not and, and you can look across every time you, you have blood work done and, and you get your blood values back you'll see a range and that range is that Goldilocks range too low a level is bad too high a level is bad but we don't apply that same thinking um, when we talk about um, legislation. And part of that is because um, the legislators don't want to leave a lot of gray, ambiguous areas. So we're back to talking about ambiguity again. Uh, and uncertainty. They don't like to leave that. And so they like to put numbers um, and thresholds on things and, and to make us believe that that,
0: those numbers have any specific uh, magic meaning, but they really don't. Let me give just one specific example uh, from Susan's story. So she mentions titanium dioxide, which is uh, a whitener, I believe. It's added to yes. mozzarella cheese. It's added to oh, no. um, toothpaste, right? To give, yes. give products that, sh- that we think should look white, their white color. Exactly, and uh, I, I wrote an article about this, and Chuck helped me with uh, some of the heavy lifting on the on the statistics side. But the the European Food Safety Authority did a study of this particular chemical back in 2019, or they did a review, excuse me, and they pointed out that rats that were fed 2,250 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, and that's just a, an enormous dose, just to set that up they did not experience any adverse effects. And then you pointed out after crunching the numbers that you'd have to eat 68 bags of Skittles daily to reach that 2,250 milligram threshold that the EFSA established in their review. So in other words, these chemicals are are in lots of products. There's no no denying that, but your exposure to them, as we always come back to, is so low that your stomach would explode from eating too much of the candy or you'd you, you know, you'd go into diabetic shock <laughs> from all the sugar long before this additive would do anything to harm you. Yes. And 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 now,
1: and then <laughs> the argument then continues to morph. So once you point that out to people, they say, well, okay, that could be true, but there could be a cumulative effect. If you ate all of those Skittles over a month, maybe then it would be bad for you. So there's any number of ways that the um, that the supporters of one belief or another will will alter the narrative and alter the framework so that their position remains uh, credible. You know, I I've learned from being a physician and interacting with lots of people over lots of in, in my instance, cardiovascular physiology, that there is a range of things. I, 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 there, there are certain things that um, will kill us. And I, and I, and I think um, Susan addressed that. She talked about, um, or she's talking on, on other occasions about cyanide, which we know is bad. There is no amount of cyanide that I'm willing to ingest. It's, it's a very strong poison. But I, I think in the case of the PFAs, um, they've defined a concentration of PFAs 50,000 times less than cyanide that they consider del- deleterious. This is craziness. you know. And I'm a big fan. You know, we've talked on other occasions. I'm a big fan of the, of the dirt hypothesis. You've got to expose yourself <laughs> to, a, to a
0: lot <laughs> of things. If you want to survive on the planet. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting you mentioned the the argument morphing. The other one I hear is that, well, there's cumulative exposures from so many chemicals, you know, so maybe a little bit of uh, titanium dioxide doesn't do anything. But when you're exposed to that, plus red dye number three, plus uh, PFAS, plus, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's like, It's there's always a moving goalpost. There's always a boogeyman that you can't quite see under the bed, but you know, trust us, he's there. We just know he's there. And it, it sort of upends all the basic principles of toxicology because it's like you don't do a study and look at eight chemicals because then you can't identify which one is having the effect. Or if it's two of them, you have to study them in isolation. And then maybe after you do that kind of research, you can look at population level data and see if there's something to this cumulative thing, but they just change the argument in order to keep the hypothesis hypothesis alive, or to keep the fundraiser going if you're an environmental working group. It just never ends. You're you're, you're 100% correct. And and another interesting
1: thought that I'm just going to throw in the mix is that from an evolutionary point of view, fear is a much stronger survival skill than happiness, um And by that I mean when we we, we are fearful of things um, From an evolutionary point of view That works out to be uh, a better call Because you never really, really know So I guess that's where the precautionary principle uh, May find its roots When we were, you know, on the savannah And the, the leaves rustled It would be better to think that there could be a lion Waiting to get you than to think, ah, it's just the wind. So fear, I think, is a a much stronger evolutionary driver than than, um, the transitory happiness that we got finding um,
0: a sweet tasting fruit. It's a very good point. And I think, again, because we can allow for nuance here because we don't have to be black or white, sometimes it's good to be cautious. Right. And and to to go back to World War Two, if there's a 50 percent chance that you lost your father, your brothers and your uncles in a war that was just fought, I get why you would be skeptical of nuclear weapons or or chemical weapons or machine gun or like what whatever it is. I get it. That makes sense. It's just a matter of assessing the actual risk, you know, so like on the Savannah, it's 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 a no brainer, right? If the leaves rustle, that could be a lion about to bite your head off. So run or, you know, throw a, spe- <laughs> whatever the response is, you know, I, it's just life in the modern day is a little more complicated, I think. Yes, because, the, you know, so many of the dangers are are now, quote unquote, invisible.
1: So, you know, you, you have no way to sense it. And, you know, for, for many, you know, again, as I said, if people are serious that they want to get rid of these things out of the products, fine. But then. Plan on your cream cheese looking a little bit not quite as bright as it used to. You we know, we have a huge problem in the country with people throwing away fruit because there's a brown spot on it. I mean, thirty percent of our our food costs disappear into into waste because the you know the banana feels a little squishy or the tomato has a dent in it and gone. Um, so. We, we like to have our, our, um, our foodstuffs and our products look a certain way. And in a lot of cases, the, the chemicals that we're so concerned about are put in there so that we can have the products um, anytime we want
0: and that they always look consistent. These are, these are choices we made. Yeah, that's right. We we want everything exactly as we expect it, but we also don't want any risk or any fear or even the possibility that something might hypothetically go wrong. Right. We want uh exactly. we, want, we, we want to live in heaven is basically what we <laughs> what
1: we, want. we want heaven on earth, baby. Heaven
0: yeah. on earth. There you go. All right. Well, a couple more articles uh down. I hope you guys got a little bit out of those. It's helpful stuff. That, like these kind of stories as I said last week, this is the kind of stuff that ACSH exists for, is to give people the context for this. So thank you as always for listening. If you want to get the stories we talk about, go to acsh.org, click the subscribe tab, punch in your email. We're going to send you the stories we publish. The ones you read are the ones we talk about. And with that, we'll see you next week for episode 42. Have a lovely week.